this time. Pick up the word of truth and find Mark 2. We'll begin our time in God's word together by reading Mark 2, verses 23 to 28. Mark 2, verses 23 to 28. The title of the message this morning is Rightly Coexisting with Legalists. Mark 2, beginning verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Father God, please illuminate these words to our minds. Allow this standard of truth to bind us together. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and teachable hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. I believe without question the prince of preachers was 100% correct. One of the greatest enemies of biblical Christianity is legalism. Now, there are two kinds of legalism. Both are detrimental to your soul. One leads to eternity in hell, and one radically stunts your spiritual growth. Now, before I briefly explain those two different forms of legalism, let me explain first what legalism is not. Okay, legalism is not, first of all, narrow mindedness. Okay, some people would dub someone who's quote unquote narrow minded as legalist, as a legalist. But if 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 narrow mindedness was the standard for legalism, then you would have to call Jesus a legalist. Because Jesus said. There's only one way, right? He said, no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, it doesn't get any more narrow than that, does it? Whole, um, legalism also does not equal holiness or piety. Legalism is also not having a strong, passionate conviction. If that were the standard for legalism, then you would have to call Peter a legalist. Because he stood before thousands of men and commanded that they repent. You would have to call the Apostle Paul a legalist. 
Because on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he told the pagans, look, your God is no God at all. Turn from those gods and follow the true and living God. Can you imagine Paul standing on Mars Hill with his head down like this in a monotone, really soft voice? No. He stood before prideful, unconverted men and women, and he commanded them to repent. Pretty strong convictions, wouldn't you say? Legalism is not also abstinence from a certain activity. Just because someone chooses to abstain doesn't mean they're a legalist. Legalism is not also genuine curiosity. Okay, just because somebody likes to ask hard questions doesn't mean they're a legalist. I've been accused of being a legalist because I like to challenge people's thinking. Some people don't like to be challenged. Some people just want to talk about fluff all the time. They don't want to ask hard questions. They don't want to, be, they don't want to answer hard questions. But that doesn't mean I'm a legalist. If I ask you a hard question, it simply means that I'm curious. <laughs> so th- those things, so if, if you, because I know you've heard legalism before, and, and some people have a wrong idea of what it is. Those things, those five things, narrow-mindedness, holiness, conviction, abstinence, and curiosity, those things have nothing to do with legalism, Okay. Legalism is, firstly, as Spurgeon alluded to, is a system of works righteousness. In other words, it's an attempt to earn salvation. It's an attempt to obey the law in order to be justified by God. That's like, uh, for example, Roman Catholicism. Right? They, they believe that, that, that in order to be justified before God, you have to have faith and sacraments. Mormonism. They believe that faith in God and acts of charity and kindness contribute to their stand before God. That is the legalism that Spurgeon was talking about, and that is the legalism that sends one to hell. But then there is another type of legalism that you and I will encounter often. The second type is a set of extra-biblical rules enforced on professing believers as the standard for true spirituality. I'll repeat that. The second type of legalism is a set of extra-biblical rules enforced on professing believers as the standard for true spirituality. Now, this is common in Christian circles, isn't it? And it's evil. It's wrong. And we need to be equipped to deal with it rightly. We need to be equipped to deal with it in a Christ-like manner. This is what our text this morning will accomplish. In Mark 2, 23-28, we will discover the four keys to coexisting with legalists in a Christ-like manner. Four keys 
to coexisting with legalists in a Christ-like manner. If we take these keys to heart and apply them, then we will, you will, be safeguarded against any and all forms of legalism. Do you desire this morning to shield your soul from legalism? I hope so. Well, the first key to coexisting with legalists in a Christ-like way is to enjoy spirit-filled freedom. Enjoy your freedom. Enjoy it. Do not live your life fearing what legalists think about you. Because Jesus and the apostles didn't. In verse 23 they commit a serious infraction in the eyes of the Pharisees. Let's look at verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. What was the infraction? Picking heads of grain. That's it. They got themselves in trouble because they were picking grain. Now, you may be thinking, why is that wrong? Why is that sin? Well, to answer that question, you have to do a little background study to figure out why picking heads of grain on the Sabbath was so utterly offensive to the Pharisees. First, you have to understand the Old Covenant concept of the Sabbath. Then, second, you need to understand where the idea of picking heads of grain on the Sabbath came from. The Sabbath is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease, to end, or to rest. It was linked to the seventh day of creation. When Yahweh commanded his people to observe a day of rest and to refrain from work. Other than rest, it was instituted for God's people to be a day of worship, a day to focus on the Lord. It was a gift. The Sabbath was meant to be a gift to the people. It was never, ever intended to be a burden. But sadly, as is so common, what God gave as a good gift Men take it, and they turn to something else. The Sabbath evolved into a day of honoring strict rabbinic rules and restrictions more than honoring Yahweh. We'll get to more. We'll get uh, expound more on that in a minute. Now, what is the big deal behind picking heads of grain? Contrary to the Pharisee disapproval, what the disciples were doing, picking heads of grain, was perfectly legal. It was perfectly lawful. According to Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, it says, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand. Did you hear that? Deuteronomy says, You may pluck the heads with your hand. But you shall not wield the sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So you can pick it with your hand. You just can't harvest it. 
While harvesting someone's grain was not permitted, God allowed travelers to pluck a few heads of grain while walking beside a ripened field. This was God's means of provision that he made for his people. So Jesus' disciples, they were doing exactly what the Old Testament permitted. New Testament times, it was normal for pathways to crisscross fields. So travelers would traverse through crops routinely. And as they journeyed on their way, they walked alongside the crops that lined both sides of the paths. So it was convenient just to walk along the field and have some lunch. And as they picked off the heads of grain, they would rub the heads in their hands to remove the husk and shell. They ate the kernel. And those actions were perfectly allowable within the purposes of God. But they weren't in the minds of religious Jews. So here's what we need to observe here. Jesus and the disciples did not walk on eggshells so as to please legalists. And neither should you. Our Lord and his followers knew very well what they were doing. They knew that they were not conforming to extra biblical rules. Apparently, this is one thing we love about Jesus, right? Jesus had already freed them from this. He freed them from the spiritual tyranny and heavy oppression of first century Judaism. Likewise, brothers and sisters, you should live free from any and all man-made rules in your personal life. This does not mean that we shouldn't be sensitive to the quote-unquote weaker brother, but it does mean that you're free from Old Testament law first and foremost, and it also means you're free from a lot of the churchianity that you might have experienced before. If there is no clear, explicit rule or law in the New Testament, live your life freely. Experience the joy of the spiritual freedom that Christ purchased for you freely. So you can disregard common rules that perhaps that you have heard of in conservative Christian circles. For example, for some reason, I hate to use this example, but it's so common. It's just like we can't just get over it. You know where I'm going? This issue of alcohol. I, I'm, I can't, I, it just astounds me that either old Christians or young Christians, it's always a debate. It's like we can't, it's like we can't figure it out and, get, and move on. So, so let me use this as an example so hopefully we can weed it out in our church. As you may know, it is not a sin to drink, right? Not a sin to drink beer. So guess what? Don't go to a restaurant in town and be afraid of what someone in this room will think of you if you want to have a beer. Because the Bible Bible doesn't forbid it. And so if 
But if you're offended by that, if you're offended by one of your brothers or sisters having a beer or a glass of wine, then listen, you are the weaker brother. And you need to retrain your conscience. You need to retrain your conscience. Did you know that there are really three different types of consciences? There, there, is, there is a seared conscience. Conscience. The seared conscience is when you, you don't think anything sin. You're, you're an antinomian. You are against any type of law. But then on the other side, there's an overactive conscience where you think everything's sin. And in the middle, there's a biblical conscience. And that's where we all need to strive to be. Okay? So with regard to this example of alcohol, this, this topic that we like to discuss ad nauseum, <laughs> it's not a sin to drink. So if you like beer or wine or even a cocktail, enjoy it. But it, it is a sin to get drunk, to lose control. Okay? So... So that, that's just one example of many of a, of a pharisaical rule that's prevalent in a lot of churches. And even, even a lot of Baptist churches, they might say, oh, yeah, we know that, 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 that it's not a sin to drink. But then in their culture, it's still a taboo. It, it's, it's like, yeah, we know it's not sin, but um, if I get caught, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get judged. So I, I, I don't want that to be like that in our church. Know what the Bible says. Obey the laws in the New Testament. Then live freely. Live freely. So that implies that we have to know God's word, uh, especially the New Testament. So when somebody comes along and says to you that you must do, sim- do something that Scripture doesn't command, or... When someone comes along and says that you must not do something that Scripture doesn't forbid, you, you won't need to be concerned. You won't need to be influenced to have an overactive conscience. And furthermore, you won't be surprised when you're confronted with, with this legalism. That leads us to the second key to rightly coexisting with Legalists in a Christ-like way. First, enjoy oh, your spirit-filled freedom. Man, I remember when I understood this for the first time. It was like almost being born again for the second time. Right? The first time, your sins fall off and they roll down the hill. And you know you're going to heaven. But then guys like me who get saved at a later in life, they go into a church where they, you see a lot of man-made rules, and it's like you get bound again. And then when I start to see Jesus, and it doesn't take a seminary degree to see that Jesus did not concern himself with man-made rules. So brothers and sisters, follow Jesus in that example. Live freely. Enjoy your spirit-filled freedom. 
But secondly, you have to expect mean-spirited judgment. Enjoy your freedom, but at the same time, expect mean-spirited judgment. Because guess what? Just like the poor, (laughs) we'll always have the poor with us. We'll always have legalists with us. Legalists are known for their falsely incrimination of others. And we see here that Jesus allows these legalists to spew out their ignorant accusations. Look at verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, hold up. Where are they pulling that out? Where's the chapter and verse, please? We should be asking those kinds of questions, right? Why why would they accuse Jesus and the disciples of sinning? And by the way, if you turn to Luke 6, verse 2, you'll see... Luke adds Jesus in there. In Luke 6, verse 2, it says, Why do you, the Pharisees speaking to Jesus, why do you do what is not lawful? So Jesus is also being indicted here. Again, we have to know who these Pharisees are, don't we? To understand why they're accusing Jesus of sinning. Well, let me remind you that the Pharisees were experts in rabbinic law. Not Old Testament law. They knew the man-made rules, but they were ignorant of God's rules. Not only did they seek to know and to seek to abide by literally thousands of rules that were created to clarify the original, quote-unquote, clarify the original um, intent of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, they very much prided themselves on keeping those regulations. So with Jesus already on their radar, they really think they got him now. Right? Because all they know is a rabbinic law. They have much ignorance when it comes to biblical law. And they can't fathom why Jesus, who appears to be a faithful Jew, who is a leader, a teacher... A guy who is gathering a following of faithful Jews. They can't fathom why a man like that would violate their tradition. The Pharisees in verse 24, they're not referring to an unlawful act in God's eyes. They're referring to an unlawful unlawful act in their eyes. That is to say that the disciples were not guilty of breaking one of Yahweh's laws as we discovered in the previous point, right? They're being judged for breaking a rabbinic law. Now, according to Jewish scholarship, the Pharisees had, uh, over time, created, get this, 39 separate categories of what qualified as work. 39. And within those 39 categories, there were subcategories. Of what, and, and they listed what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. So to follow the rule of not working on the Sabbath, you had to literally know, and this is no exaggeration, you had to know thousands of sub-rules to follow. Can you imagine? I mean, how many people, how many of you didn't even know that there were 613 Old Testament laws? 
613 Old Testament laws. Can you imagine then taking those and then making thousands and thousands more to help you obey those laws? It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? So, so, so here's, by, by these rabbinic standards, he, listen to what the disciples were guilty of. There were several of them. By picking the grain, the Pharisees said they were guilty of reaping. By removing the husks and shell from the grain, you know, by, by rubbing it in their fingers, they were guilty of sifting. By, 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 by tossing the, the, the husks and the shell into the air, they, they were guilty of threshing and winnowing. And by eating the grain, they were guilty of preparing a meal. None of those activities were permitted on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. They were not forbidden by God, but they were by men. And when extremely prideful and religiously zealous men are offended, what do they do? They spew out mean-spirited judgment. This is exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. And it's exactly what some professing believers do today. Have you ever wrongly judged a fellow believer? Have you ever wrongly judged a fellow believer for doing something you thought was wrong, but then later learned that you were wrong? Have you ever directly confronted or perhaps made a passive-aggressive comment to someone at church because they violated your personal standard of preference? I think you all have at some point, at some time, in some way. I think we all have misjudged a brother and sister at some point. And we would do well to watch ourselves in this area of judging others. We would do well. So when you judge, and let's be honest, right, we do judge. And some judging is not bad, right? Jesus said that we should judge righteously. In Matthew 18, he commands Christians to go to a sinning brother to show him his sin. Galatians 6, go to him and restore your brother who was caught in a trespass. So, so there is judgment involved in, in the church. There is righteous judgment to be applied in our relationships. But... We have to be careful that we do not judge each other in a mean-spirited manner using a false human standard. So we need to keep in mind that as someone who desires to be like Christ, we need to be very sensitive with, with regard to our own tendency to be judgmental. 
if these legalists went after Jesus, like I said before already, you need to expect to have encounters with them in your life. And most likely, even in this church, when that moment comes, when you feel assaulted by a Pharisee, don't be surprised. Don't automatically break fellowship. Don't respond in anger. Let's follow the example of Jesus in Mark 2. He allowed these hypocritical Pharisees to question him. He dialogues with them. And the next thing he does is ask them heart-probing questions. That's the third key to rightly coexisting with legalists. Ask heart-probing questions. Here we see from our master how to respond to the false incrimination of legalists. Here we see the power and wisdom in asking thoughtful questions. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, Have you ever read? Have you ever read? Or have you never read? Stop right there for a second. This, this, this is one of the facets of our Lord's personality that strikes me the most. Notice how Jesus responds to these Pharisees. Without apology, he immediately takes them back to Scripture. He immediately takes them back to Scripture. That is the most heart-probing tactic one could use. Because... No one is going to argue with the straightforward reading of Scripture, are they? Well, unless, of course, you're dealing with an unbelieving liberal. But Jesus is not dealing with skeptics here, is he? He's dealing with the religious leaders of Judaism. So, to essentially ask, hey guys, do you remember in the Bible where it talks about David going to the temple and eating consecrated bread? To ask that question, he's using their own weapon against them, which is the law. He takes them back to the law. He takes them to the ultimate law, to the divinely inspired primary source. The account that Jesus refers to in verses 25 and 26 is found in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I will summarize. Back in 1 Samuel 18, we find the genesis of David's relationship to Saul. Remember? After David defeated Goliath, it didn't take long before the people gave more glory to David for killing how many? Ten thousands, while the king only got credit for killing thousands. So this made Saul so jealous that he looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Then the very next verse reads, An evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. Have you guys ever wrestled with that? An evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. So so Saul hated David. You know the story. So much so that Saul wanted to kill David. And he tried to. He tried. He chucked the spear at him, right? 
that he missed. And Jonathan went to go advocate for David, and for a while Saul relented. But then this evil spirit provoked Saul to force David into exile, remember? From that point on, Saul started acting more like a paranoid schizophrenic than a faithful Jew, didn't he? He relentlessly tried to kill David. David fled. And right after David fled in 1 Samuel uh, 21, he came to the city of the priests about a mile from Jerusalem where he asked for supplies. When the priest questioned David, what did David do? He lied. He lied to save his own life. Then the priest, motivated out of mercy, disregarded. Now, this is important. The priest disregarded. He disobeyed the ceremonial law and provided David with consecrated bread. Track with me so far? You have to understand this to understand what Jesus is saying. Here we see why that small act of charity was a big deal by the priest. By law, Leviticus 24, verse 9, only priests were permitted to eat that bread. Now, I find it interesting that nobody got punished. Other times, Yahweh just drops people dead on the spot, right? Right, the guy who reached out and touched the pole of the ark just dropped dead like a sack of potatoes. Then Anath and Sapphira lied, and they dropped dead like a sack of potatoes. But here, Jonathan lied to a priest. And then the priest disobeys Yahweh and gives David and his men the bread. Yahweh doesn't do anything. And here we see Jesus himself using that as an argument to make his point to the legalists. In appealing to this account, Jesus was showing that compassion in God's sight always trumped strict adherence to ritual. Jesus was saying that if it was permissible for a human priest to make an exception to God's law in order to aid David then it was surely appropriate for the Son of God to disregard human tradition in order to meet the needs of the disciples. That's important. I'm going to repeat that because some of you weren't listening. Jesus is saying here that if it was permissible for a human priest to break the law in order to help David, then it was surely appropriate for the Son of God to disregard human tradition to help his disciples. So he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the Pharisees gave the Old Testament priests a pass for not following their rules, then surely they should not be so provoked to anger by what Jesus did. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's using the word of God to expose their hyperlegalism and their shocking hypocrisy. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Legalism and hypocrisy go together like peanut butter and jelly. 
You show me a man who loves to bind others to human tradition, and I'll show you a man who hates God by disregarding his word. So when you're trying to rightly coexist with legalists in a Christ-like way, do what Jesus did. Expose their hearts by steering the discussion to appropriate and applicable text of Scripture. Don't be afraid to ask a legalist, have you read this chapter and verse lately? On what, on what scriptural grounds did you develop that conviction? Does the Bible say that's wrong and where? From what text forced you to arrive at that conclusion? Will you help me understand your position better by showing me biblical evidence? Ask those questions. You protect your soul. And a secondary effect is that you're serving the legalist by doing that. Now, as, as a word of caution, as I get to the last point here, as, as a word of caution and a plea for balance, sometimes we think we are under the attack of a legalist and we're really not. I must say that because we can't be too hypersensitive about being judged. Sometimes we act sinfully, don't we? Oftentimes we act unwisely and immaturely. So therefore, there are times in our walk when we need correction and admonishment. That's biblical, right? So don't take every and all criticism and rebuke as a form of legalism. Sometimes, some of us more than others, need the loving reproof of a brother or a sister if we are clearly violating God's word. Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So keep that in mind. If you ever find yourself in an instance where your brother or sister is trying to help you grow. Or when a brother or sister is showing you your sin. So before you decide that you're dealing with a legalist, you may need to wonder if the judgment made about you has any truth to it. But that said, when you know, when you're convinced, because you've asked these heart-probing questions, when you're convinced that you are dealing with a modern-day Pharisee, instead of getting defensive and upset, I used to get really defensive and upset if someone, you know, confronted me. But by God's grace, I don't get as defensive and upset. <laughs> I think all of us do by nature. It's easy to get defensive and upset. But what we're doing here is trying, we're trying to, to see how Jesus interacted with these mean-spirited legalists. So instead of getting upset, let's do what Jesus said. Let's orient the discussion, orient the mind back to the word of God. And if there's no desire, now this happens too, if there's no desire for the legalist to have a discussion about Scripture, then what you're dealing with, 
you're dealing with possibly a false convert or an extremely misled babe in Christ. Finally, fourth key to rightly coexisting with a legalist in a Christ-like way is to speak God-breathed truth. Enjoy your freedom. Expect judgment. Ask questions. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Some of us are too good at this. Some of us are really bad at this. Because in order to speak the truth, it takes a little bit of courage. Right? It takes a little bit of boldness. It takes a little bit of, mm, dare I say, aggression to assert something true. So eventually, you need to go from asking to telling. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is reminding his hearers that God designed the Sabbath to be a merciful day of spiritual reflection. It was made for man in that sense. It was made for man. To serve man. To benefit man. To be a blessing for man. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's speaking truth. He's speaking basic theology to these Pharisees. He's explained to them that the Sabbath was created for a totally other purpose than what they made it. It is not, as one commentator noted, an end in itself, nor the greatest good. But these legalistic Pharisees turned what God intended as a blessing and turned it into a dreaded, unbearable burden. Brothers and sisters, aren't you happy that you live on this side of the cross? We think that we've had bad experiences in legalistic churches or legalistic Christians. We've had nothing. The most legalistic church in America has got nothing on these Pharisees. Thousands of rules to obey on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So if nothing else, be thankful that you live in a day and you go to a church that doesn't impose extra biblical rules on you. If you think I do, come show me. (laughs) I'll ask you some heart-coping questions. (laughs) And you can ask me. So, verse 28. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Translation, I am the sovereign ruler over the Sabbath. And who alone has the right and true authority to rule the Sabbath? Yahweh the God of the Old Testament. The covenant-keeping, covenant-making God who wrote the law. So you see, here 
is really one of the many professions of deity that Jesus made. Jesus was claiming to be God, the creator, the one who made the Sabbath in the first place. And therefore, he is sovereign over it. The implication is this. No man on the face of the planet can tell Jesus what he can and cannot do on the Sabbath. That's the God-breathed truth. There's much more we could expound on that. There's much more that could be said. But we need to see here that Jesus gave them truth. And Jesus unapologetically and firmly delivered it. So, as we wrap this up, I submit to you that if you are going to rightly coexist with legalists, you must be able and willing to speak truth accurately. Number one, for the sake of your own soul. And number two, for the sake of our church. Therefore, we must know God's word and we must be confident enough to accurately expound it. It's been said that Christianity is a truth religion. And by nature, we also must be known primarily as truth speakers. Amen? So lastly, the takeaway here. As I conclude, in this text, we rightly learn how to live in a world surrounded by legalists. They're all over the place. The first kind of legalist is what? Everyone that is not part of biblical Christianity. The second legalism, form of legalism, is what Jesus is experiencing here, and it's what we tend to experience mostly within the Christian fellowship. Enjoy spirit-filled freedom. Expect mean-spirited judgment. Ask heart-probing questions. Speak God-breathed truth. As you very well know, there are countless religions that would love to bind you. There are countless professing believers who would love to bind you to human tradition rather than the Christ. So let's follow the example of Jesus. Let's be conformed to his image. We follow his example in Mark 2, 23 to 28. You will be safeguarded against the power of legalism in your life. And I trust that's what you want. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for my family. And for myself as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have this short account of Jesus dealing with these legalists. How he so profoundly challenged them with heart-probing questions. How he spoke truth to them. Lord, please give us the courage and the ability to do the same. To live freely without the fear of man, 
Father, if there are any legalistic tendencies in any of us here today, may we put them to death. May we conform our conscience to the Scriptures and not to any man-made tradition. May we enjoy the life that you purchased us, purchased for us. Lord, and may you please give us the ability to understand your word and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen.